0: This show is part of the retrozap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. That's enough,
1: Hello. And welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen Kent, and this bonus episode is a continuation of our Beltway interview series, where Suara or myself interview someone of note who works in or around politics about Star Wars and their fandom of it. I am an occasional reader of The Federalist and a daily listener of The Federalist Radio Hour podcast hosted by Ben Dominich. And as such, I've taken a note of the very strong presence Star Wars has in The Federalist. I've discussed often, uh, or it is discussed often on the podcast, um, and every few weeks on the website, there's always a think piece about Star Wars. So I went to visit Ben Dominich of The Federalist at the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College, just a few blocks from the Capitol building, to have a conversation with ben um about his well-documented fandom and pick his brain about star wars past present and future and the role that it plays in our culture um it's never a competition. I have to say, it really is never a competition between our guests. But Ben was really, really impressive to have on the show, and he <laughs> he shows the markers of someone who does think about this stuff quite often. Um, and he's got a depth of knowledge of Star Wars, old EU video games, you know, Knights of Taris, Kasi, Knights of the Old Republic, um, the Jedi Academy games, and a lot of the new canon as well. And it made for an unusually rich chat that was a lot of fun to have. Uh, we get into what Ben thinks of the new Star Wars movies, The Last Jedi, and the politics of what that movie and the new trilogy might be. Uh, ben also does a dramatic reading of a think piece about Porkins, uh, which is so funny. It brought laughing tears to my eyes that I uh, I really could not stop. So I uh, I think you'll really enjoy that. I, I definitely did. And something else that I learned from Ben about The Federalist, uh, which is known for often poking the beehive of the internet, is that they are intentionally contrarian. I didn't know that that, honestly. And, you know, I read it sometimes, but they have a reputation for it. And I wasn't really aware that that was something that was aspirational for them. On that very note, I asked Ben about a piece on the website that explored Galen Erso and the installation of a trap inside the Death Star as a comparison for how slavery was able to be ended in the United States. Uh, Emphasis on able. Um, It was a very much talked about piece that sparked a lot of strong feelings and conversation, which I think good writing does. Uh, And I found it to be really interesting. So we didn't really spend as much time on the issue as I would have liked. So if y'all think it would be interesting, we can peel back that onion of a topic on a future episode. I think it would be a conversation worth having. Before we blast off into the interview, I have a request of you um, and also something to celebrate. Beltway Banthas just turned one year old. It is our podcast birthday. We have plowed through 40 episodes this past year, and it has been such a blast. I want to thank you all so much who are listening to this show, who have been with us from the beginning, people who are new. This is such a fun privilege for me to do, to talk to people about politics and Star Wars. And our community has grown, friends of the show, listeners, like we've just loved getting to know all of you, um, hearing your emails, talking to you on Twitter, and engaging on this incredibly meaty and, and, and just fun topic. So thank you for making it possible for us to continue doing this. Um, we are eyeing some new strategies and approaches in the coming year, some of them involving more content, possibly a newsletter, all sorts of other cool stuff. So let us know what you think of the show and what you would like to see in this podcast about Star Wars and politics. It makes a huge difference for us, and we do take your emails to heart and mind the good and the bad. Shoot us a message at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com and leave us a review on iTunes or just those lovely five stars. We will settle for four, but we won't Want five. Um, our show has been growing slowly and steadily, and a burst of reviews and ratings on iTunes could really help put us on the map uh, with people who are interested in politics or interested in Star Wars and then iTunes can predict, you know, where people might overlap. And we want to get fed to more people so that this show can continue to grow. It's our birthday, so please give us the best present in the world, which is just a little bit more of your time um, to offer us some feedback. It means a whole lot. Uh, And with that being said, here's my conversation with Ben Dominich. All right. And today I'm sitting down with Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist. Ben, I listen to your show every day. Um, I love it. It got me unhooked from a lot of my other more bad podcast and daily radio habits. And you talk about Star Wars on your show an awful lot. It it often just comes up organically. You just have a way of doing it. Um, And I I just want to know. Uh, how did Star Wars start for you? Why is it a thing that you still always want to talk about?
0: Uh, Well, first, thank you for for reaching out, and thank you particularly for listening. I'm really glad that you take the time uh, to listen, and I hope it's interesting for you, uh, whether you uh, agree with everything we have to say uh, or not. Um, I mean, I grew up watching Star Wars with my siblings. Uh, I have have three younger siblings, uh, two uh, close to me in, in age, my younger sister and brother. And uh, I think it was really something that was uh, a shared bonding experience from early on. We grew up uh, in uh, Mississippi and in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and there, uh, I remember us having uh, these the old VHS tape, uh, you know, collection of, of Star Wars that we watched so often that they would run out, uh, and just like the the you know the screen would start to mess up just because the VHSs would start to go.
1: We're talking about the nineteen like ninety six gold gold wrap <laughs> tapes. No. This is these are the earlier ones. These okay. are the,
0: this is the even earlier uh, like box that has the weird art on the sides yeah. of it, um, and uh, and th- and that edition was definitely the one that that we uh, we really took that to the limit in terms of what it could tolerate. And of course, I remember playing with the toys and everything like that. But uh, I think I think that what it was always something that we that we all love for different reasons. Um, I think uh, I liked it because of the space battles and everything associated with that. I, uh, uh, i just really enjoyed that. What I think my brother liked about it was kind of the hand to hand combat kind of things. I remember him running around with one glove after the, the after return uh, came out. Uh, and my sister really liked it because, and it's, uh, it's not, uh, necessarily, something that I think people even thought about or, or or noticed in kind of this broader context, but you know, Princess Leia was always a badass, and that was something that we didn't really see a lot of in. Uh, in movies, when we were growing up, we saw more uh, women as kind of the either the, the either they're the femme fatale or they're the uh, or they're the object of rescue or something like that. And I think she liked the fact that uh, that she had kind of a kick butt uh, female star who was in uh, who was in the movie who she what uh, uh, could emulate not just as being a princess but being as a princess who kind of got into things and and mixed it up with people. So really, I think for for us, you know, from the beginning, it was kind of One of the few, one of those things that we all bonded over as kids together. Uh, And then because, you know, uh, as we grew up and made more friends, found that uh, others loved it too. Well, at
1: the publication you now manage, there is a Star Wars headline uh, just every couple of weeks. Some of my favorites just from from the recent past is, The Death Star is a Stupid Idea. Please Stop Making It. Uh, <laughs> the Last Jedi Will Make uh, Return of the Jedi Meaningless. Uh, Nine Reasons the Jedi Are the Bad Guys in mm-hmm. Star Wars are mm-hmm. just a few examples. So you have um, allowed this to continue in the space in which you operate today as a professional. Um, why do you think it continues to resonate with you? as a working adult. Well, you know, I think
0: uh, I think part of it is just that uh, the Star Wars stories are so well known and so uh, epic and recognizable that you can come at them from a lot of different ways and have people understand the the narrative that you're talking about. Uh, when when something succeeds to that kind of to that level to that degree, then there are all sorts of debates to have. Uh, within the universe about different aspects of it and i think that the expanded universe has obviously fueled that as well you know one of the things that for instance uh uh, my brother and I particularly have in common is, is video games, and uh, as he's gone uh, overseas and uh, uh, serving in the military in multiple uh, tours, he's taken with him a lot of the older Star Wars games and replayed them, you know, particularly Knights of the Old Republic, which you can play through in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and and once you have done that a couple of times, you start to develop bigger arguments and thoughts about it. Now, to respond to that, I will say, we, we run contrarian uh, opinions as no. uh, 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 on, you know, by <laughs> it intentionally. And so don't uh-huh. think when you see, whenever you see a headline that we have about star Wars, don't think that it's necessarily, uh, one that, uh, that I would agree with or that we even uh-huh. expect most people to agree with. Um, you know, for instance, I feel like, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's David Arsani who wrote the, the stop making movies about the death star. It's stupid. Uh-huh. Um, he, uh, I would disagree with that because I think that Rogue One was an excellent movie and it needed the Death Star as some, as a key element in it, even if it used it in a way that was uh, different from the other uh, films that were out there. Uh, and the other thing that I think is is uh, you know interesting about these debates and how much fuel they still have for. Adults today is that if you're debating about your childhood, you can get very passionate about it. It inspires certain emotions in people uh, that more modern uh, debates uh, don't necessarily don't necessarily have that kind of uh, that nostalgic kick to them. And I would much rather that be about something that's as interesting as Star Wars than, say, you know, other aspect of of, you know, late 70s, early 80s uh, kind of nostalgia or or people who just came through it to it uh, having Seen uh, the prequels, which is obviously a completely uh, different experience. One of the things that, though, that I that I find to be interesting about that is uh, that because the Star Wars universe contains all these different elements, because it is a, a built world, uh, it, it more resembles the debates about. Uh, uh shows or series that are based on on significantly thick you know literature mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that they're that they are films there's enough material there to really uh, say you know we can have all sorts of different debates and conspiracy theories and things like that there are people who do you know 45-minute YouTube videos with their particular theories about where Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones is going next, you can do the same thing within the Star Wars universe because there's so many different elements to it.
1: Well, then I want to ask you on that note where Star Wars going next. Um, I have a working theory about The Last Jedi um, that was in the Examiner this past week Mm -hmm. about how I think – They are headed towards this old idea from the EU about the Grey Jedi, Mm -hmm. and that Luke Skywalker is on this island exploring a middle ground of the Force or a new territory that either balances the light and the dark or dismisses the paradigm entirely, and he's going to try and pass that on to Rey, and she will either accept or deny it, and then go the path of the light. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that that is possible? And if so, what do you think it says about where we are as a society today, as opposed to Star Wars of old, light and dark? Mm -hmm. Evil empire.
0: <laughs> so uh, I think that's certainly possible. Uh, and I think that there's a number of pieces of evidence you could point to as being examples of this. One of the things that really changed my mind um, in uh, in thinking about uh, Star Wars or just that I found to be something that added to it significantly was was reading the uh, the cheeseburger brown uh, Darth side uh uh, blog that ran uh, several years ago which if your listeners ha- haven't read it uh, really they ought to there's a there's a significant revelation in it and it's basically supposed to be it starts out as this kind of funny Darth Vader keeping a diary sort of thing mm-hmm. but then there are a couple of little profound insights that show up along the way and one in particular is in the context of describing differences, how Vader views the differences between light and dark and the way he basically describes it is uh, is depicting uh what he wants to achieve uh, as uh, as a sith as being utterly at odds uh with with the jedi on the point of involvement in uh, in the affairs of the universe, that he essentially mm-hmm. views the Jedi the way you would view a holy monk who kind of separates or keeps the universe at a, at a distance, uh, that they may try to do good or fight for good in various ways, but that most of the time they're more about backing away from it and meditating in the Force and viewing this as like this religious experience uh, that they have as kind of these, these higher beings, whereas he approaches it more from the perspective of if if you have the power to influence uh, the way that the universe is going, and you understand that it tilts towards chaos, then you have an obligation to do whatever you can to try to establish order or keep or keep things from tilting in that direction, because it would be much much worse than uh, whatever you know evils you have to do in the in the role that you have uh, to hold things together. That's an interesting theological debate to have. Like, it's because it's one that connects with you know a lot of the different ways that you might view the difference between uh, you know monks who take a vow of silence uh, and those who believe that you have to go out and and heal the sick and you know take an active role in in the affairs of of human people. Now, of course it's corrupted by the evil that that vader has to do in the course of this and the and the death that results of it but the the idea the very idea that there was some sort of deeper theological debate there was interesting to me i feel like this kind of builds on that in the sense that if if luke's position is if his theological position is basically uh, the role that we have ends up getting a lot of people killed, or that you know it sends a lot of people uh, spiraling towards uh, towards death in ways. You know that that on balance, he thinks that kind of the this light dark paradigm has been worse for the galaxy uh, than uh, than potentially something else. It's. It's, that's an au- understandable thing given what he's experienced in his own lifetime and what he's seen and the evil that's been done uh, and uh, and how little the Jedi have been able to to mitigate you know some of that and so I think that he can look back you know certainly at, at the decisions made uh, when when he was much younger, when the decisions that led to, to uh, the mistakes that his father made, et cetera, and, uh, and critique them from that uh, point of view. I think that's a very interesting thing to explore. I don't know what it looks like in terms of mapping it all out or if they have it in their heads where this series is going, but I definitely think that's a legitimate idea.
1: Well, I, I'm glad you agree because I'm excited about it as a fan. I think they need new territory. They can't just keep doing this black robe versus white robe thing forever, especially when the prequel's Laid out in a very half hearted way this idea of a prophecy, Mm -hmm. someone who would bring balance to the force. Um, But as a cultural observer, I'm a little bit more concerned because I I cannot separate mm-hmm. what I think about Hollywood, what I think about movie producers, and where they get some of their ideas. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to me from a character standpoint that Luke might eventually look at all the destruction and the, the, the swinging pendulum in the galaxy and think this has just been mm-hmm. horrible for mm-hmm. everybody. Um, but I'm wondering what you think about where the production teams are coming at it from, how the writers are thinking about it, and if they're trying to tell us anything about the world we live in today, which is incredibly divided, Mm -hmm. um, full of an increasingly uh, large wave of moral relativism, and whether or not this
0: Factors into it. Oh my! Oh my gosh! The galaxy uh, long ago and far, far away is tilting towards moral relativism <laughs> and postmodernism. Oh no, no! Uh, so it's never happened. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think that that's that is interesting. And and so one of the things I will confess that um, uh, in no other area do I treat. Uh, I'm I'm willing to look at trailers and spoilers and things like that for every other film franchise, yeah. but I studiously. Avoid it when it comes to Star Wars because I legitimately want to be surprised by it. I don't ever want to have the experience of, you know, even just having seen the trailers for Rogue One. I went in there with the anticipation of, I think they're going to do this thing. I yeah. think they're really going to do that. Um and uh and so the the assumption and and having that assumption sort of rewarded was was nice. But I try to avoid anticipating that beforehand. So have you not seen the Last Jedi trailer? So no, I've I've seen the teaser. I've seen yeah. the teaser, but but I won't typically see more than what you would see if you just run across it in, uh, in the trailers before a movie. Uh, and so I, I confess not to having pay, paid much attention to the writing process or who's involved and that kind of thing. I t- try not to do that until after I see it. The, the aspect of this that I think would be interesting about that when it comes to the moral relativism side of things is, uh, you know, whether that's something that fits into the universe in a way that, Affects a bunch of other relationships and decisions, Um, you know, the weakest I I felt that the the, kind of the weakest uh, part of of the Force Awakens uh, was the lack of any emotional punch uh, when uh, they destroy uh, multiple planets all at once. And that to me was just like. I felt nothing. I felt nothing for those people. I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, it's like, oh, they blew up a bunch of planets. I should feel sad now, but it, it, I didn't have any kind of uh, process there. The, the character development in the first in the first trilogy uh, uh, is. Uh, is really wonderful, I think, and, and it holds up very well. You can go back and you can watch it again and you can see these characters change over time as each of the movies takes place. I think it'll be really interesting how they decide to change Ray. You know, there's there's uh, you know whether they listen to any outside critiques or whether they ignore them all and take mm-hmm. the character in the direction they wanted it to go anyway. But it is interesting if uh, you know there was there is the the, the the prophecy, the Son of Sons, you know, all of that stuff. Uh-huh. You know, it would be interesting to take that in a direction that I I think not a lot of people would expect. You mentioned the Death Star. So I want to ask you about a Death Star analogy, which I found
1: particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. And it kind of broke the internet. It was written by Josh Distel in The Federalist. It was titled, How Rogue One Backs Up the Founder's Approach to Slavery. (laughs) Have you read that piece or did that that run by you? I found this parallel to be compelling for a number of reasons um, that we can discuss. I was wondering if you could offer a defense of that parallel, that the founders did make a short-term compromise Mm -hmm. um, with the founding of the country that was built in, sort of like a vulnerable exhaust port, if you will, um, to the country to dismantle slavery in the long run. And if you found that parallel to actually uh, strike the right footing.
0: One of the things that I think you see in the founding is uh, there's a lot of different debates embedded in it that you feel like uh, the people aren't ready for yet. The Mm -hmm. American people aren't ready for challenging uh, the position of women in society. They're not ready for challenging their perceptions of of, uh, the position of race in society, that kind of thing. and I believe that the founders did embed some things uh, in the language, in the uh, in the text of of our founding documents, not just the Constitution and the Declaration, but also I think just in their own uh, public statements and elsewhere. You can find all these different threads running through them, where basically they recognize these elements are intention. We have to figure out a way to move forward and to and to recognize this. You know, in in some way in our society but we're also trying to start a country right now and we don't necessarily know what else will. you know th- th- there isn't a lot of precedent for this being successful in terms of, of, uh, of this kind of approach particularly when it comes to dealing uh, with post-colonial uh, Britain at that point in, in, uh, in uh, our American history I think there are all sorts of little traps like that embedded in, uh, in our founding documents that basically uh, that, that basically created a scenario where Americans were going to have to to uh, uh, confront these things. It just was going to take another generation or so for them to come through and recognize that these elements were in tension. And the founders, you know, to varying degrees, you know, depending on which one of them you look at, uh, recognized, I think, these tensions in place. Uh, as regards uh, the creation of the Death Star itself, I actually, I enjoyed the, I don't read a lot of the Expanded Universe stuff, but I enjoyed Death Star, the book that focused on its construction and creation mm-hmm. from the perspective of the people involved in it. Is this
1: it. one of the older books? Yeah, uh, uh, like, or is it the, the recent one, Catalyst? No, it's not Catalyst. It's okay. old.
0: It's older than that. Okay. Uh, and so it, it basically, uh, I like any of the things that drill down to the perspective of of uh, background characters or individuals within this universe mm-hmm. that gets us away from the central Jedi, fi- like Star um, Skywalker family plotline, uh, because I think that's you know we've seen that that's good that's fine that's interesting, but you don't have to stick with that to get interesting stories out of the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. There's huge moral like dilemmas associated with blowing up the Death Star, like it just in the sense of like. You know all the different things that you have to run through. You know, in terms of battling the empire and what they what they're trying to achieve with it, and I think that that's something that you can uh, that you can appreciate more when you think about all the people who are going to die on it. You know, who've been part of this military escapade and may not necessarily share the values of of uh, of, the, of the various grand moths and certainly yeah. the emperor.
1: Galen Galen Erso. Reminded us that people were conscripted into service yes. um, to work on this stuff. Yes. Um, all of those scientists who Orson Krennic had gunned down on that rainy planet—they um, didn't look like they wanted to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I think they probably knew. I don't think I'm going out in the rain for a nice award ceremony or something like that. So the, the point just kind of being, I like stuff that deals with those those moral questions about this, and uh, you know, particularly in an era of, I mean, you know, if if you understood the Death Star, the original Death Star as being a commentary on uh, on you know the the need for, on on the nuclear age and basically you know the what it would take to maintain order in in the midst of this uh, type of galactic conflict you know there's there's all sorts of questions that come out of that and when is it moral to use this is it ever moral to use this what is the you know the uh, what's the uh, what's you know sort of going on here and the early the early usage of it was kind of slapdash mm-hmm. you know it's uh, you know what's the morality of, of Princess Leia basically dooming a bunch of people on a planet who had no nothing to do with the uh, rebellion just because she wants to cover for you know the the people that she's covering for there's all sorts of moral questions with that and I, I think those are really interesting and uh, and and worth getting into and I'd love to see going forward as Disney does what they want to do with this series uh, the ability for much Smaller movies, much smaller Star Wars films to take place. I'd love. So you're excited about Star Wars stories these yes. every other year. Yes. So, um, uh, obviously, you know, he's uh, a very inconsistent director, but one of my f- if you uh, if you look back at like the last couple of years of alien invasion stories, I still think that Signs is like an excellent uh, invasion story. I you know? agree. Like, I think it's the best drilling down to like, OK, there's no big beam of light coming out of the sky that superheroes all around the world have to deal with at the same time. There's no huge CGI army of people. It's just like, what would what would this look like if you, you were just a small town person who? Who cared about your kids? And it's a lot. It's an odd little movie, but it's also like it, it takes it back to this kind of Hitchcockian level of we care more about it just because they're, these individual characters are so small. I would love to see movies of that size within the Star Wars universe, mm-hmm. where maybe we don't even have to get off a world. Maybe it's all in the same place, you know, the whole time. You know, it's you don't need to necessarily have uh, something that you know works as. Um, uh, you know, works at, on on the same level for all of these. You know, it, it's it sounds silly, but uh, the in the Force Awakens part of uh, part of it that I liked the most was. Before Ray was really getting into things when she was scavenging and it was just like, I know this sounds silly, but it just made me think, wow, it'd be, it'd be really cool to have just like the scavenger movie or a bounty hunter movie or something like that, you know, uh, where someone's getting stalked in the jungle or, you know, trying to find, you know, a particular thing and that that kind of movie would work for me too within the universe because I'm a super fan but I bet you it would work for a lot of others too
1: yeah I remember um, there was this YouTube video one of the many analysis videos out there that uh, came out this past month uh, analyzing how Rogue One failed to get emotional buy-in from viewers in the beginning Mm -hmm. on the characters and how The Force Awakens um, despite many of its failings uh, did that with Mm -hmm. Rey and it was that five minutes that they dedicated to Rey's life on Jakku exactly that made you feel what you were going to feel for the rest of the movie with this girl Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think that that was probably one of the more powerful entire chunks of Star Wars that they've had in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because we saw life on another planet and even on Tatooine, I don't think we got that much of a look. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoyed that part. I'm curious, who is your favorite Star Wars character? And also maybe what is, um, you had mentioned like a bounty hunting movie. Is that, (laughs) and what sort of story you would like to see?
0: Okay. So um, I think, I think if I have to pick, uh, uh, If I have to if if I have to pick a favorite Star Wars character, it's probably R (laughs) two. R two, d two. Just because I I've never heard that before. I I think I actually think that he, I I think he is the linchpin to the whole series, and he holds the thing together in a lot of different ways. He's the observer. He sees everything. Um, But but I think that. I, it's hard to it's hard to pick one but it's just like if, if i if i could follow one i would follow this just this this okay. droid that has more personality than ones who can talk mm-hmm. you know frankly um but i i think that one of the other characters that appeals to me uh even though it's it's not a favorite obviously and has very little has very little screen time is uh, right after we ran one of our pieces about uh star wars one of our contrarian pieces uh, uh, about it, a couple of years ago, uh, we ran a piece that one of the readers uh, uh, wrote for us that uh, in in my newsletter, the Transom, uh, about uh, about. Uh, everyone's lovable fat guy, Porkins. <laughs> and, if you, and if you'll and if you bear with me, I just yeah. want to... Uh, he says, I know there's an extended universe backstory around Porkins. I don't know any of it. I always imagine him as a tragic figure. He's a familiar sort. Worked his job at the cubicle farm, never very socially successful, decent fellow, really into tabletop gaming with some weird friends he's known since high school quiz bowl 30 years ago. The ladies, they just don't take to Porkins <laughs> because he's earnest and awkward. And so the chronic depression that Mars' his existence... He develops a vice. But because he's basically a good guy, that vice is family sized tubs of bluebell ice cream and reading obsessively about military affairs. Not that he could ever cut it in a real military, of course. Porkins can't run ten feet without doubling over out of breath. But he loves the topic, delves into it, can talk at length about the proper employment of the Incom Fighter Series in high-atmosphere, low-orbit engagements versus capital vessels, which in turn <laughs> makes him even more tedious in social affairs. It looks like Porkin's life will be a lonely one. He will work. He will paint his Warhammer fi- figurines. He will chat about fandom with his few weird friends. And in time, he will die more or less unmourned. Then everything changes. The world falls apart. Actually, all the worlds fall apart. Suddenly, the empire is at war, and there is a rebellion, and Porkins meets his moment. Porkins could never make it in a real military, but the Rebel Alliance is not a real military. The Rebel Alliance is a scrap heap outfit that needs anything and anyone it can get. It needs awkward, fat autodidacts who have spent their entire adult lives as involuntary celibates poring over the proper employment of the Incom Fighter Series and exactly the sort of engagements the Alliance now encounters on world after world. The Alliance isn't going to give Porkins a PT test. The Alliance isn't going to give Porkins grief over his early-stage diabetes. The Alliance isn't going to give Porkins a weight test or a body composition test or a tape test. The Alliance doesn't care. The Alliance isn't in a position to care. The Rebel Alliance will give Porkins meaning. Everything changes. (laughs) They bring him on. To his surprise, he finds he is respected. And even though he has been burned too often at too many parties to fully trust the suspicion, liked. His entire life, he has been in a world where his appearance and his interests mark him as the outcast. Now these Rebels, they need Porkins They want Porkins, they have to have what he has He gives it And he asks for something in return, the thing he has wanted more than anything else in his entire life. And so at last, after many years of quiet labor, being the good guy everyone ignores, dreaming of a glory he never expected to reach, Porkins finds himself in a flight suit, in a cockpit, in an Incom X-wing, hurtling toward the greatest battle of his generation. He is frightened. He is shocked. He is overwhelmed, but he is something else, too. For the first time... Orkins is happy. And Obi-Wan Kenobi casing <laughs> down placidly from the mists of the Force does not give a shit about any of this. <laughs> oh god. Oh. So oh. so that's the that's, oh. see, that's the point. You can take this minor character who's on screen for, you know, less than 30 seconds, okay? And And understand. Okay, this is who. What brought this guy to this point? You know, there there are people who have whole you know series of ideas about characters who are in you know is pictured entirely in cockpits. You know, for uh, for mere seconds. You know, on screen. And you know, the fact that that can inspire something like this, I just think is what makes Star Wars so special.
1: Oh my goodness, I'm (laughs) I'm still like Samira wiping wiping my uh, my tears of laughter. Uh, Thank you, thank you so much for that, mentality. (laughs) You pay people. To write these things. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I don't even remember what I was going to ask you (laughs) after that. Um, So, that's your favorite. You have favorite characters, R2D2, really interests
0: you. Favorite world in Star Wars? Where do you want to live? Uh, oh gosh, where do you want to live? Yeah. See, and that can be rapid fire. Uh, I, uh, surely you belong with us here among the clouds. <laughs> I, I think Cloud <laughs> City is pretty cool. Very so cool. I mean, yeah, I think. I mean, obviously it got ruined, and you'd all, you'd have to have a more complex uh, escape plan. But yeah, I think it, it. It. I liked. I liked that kind of vibe. I would say
1: excellent. <laughs> what is your favorite movie? And if it is the Empire Strikes Back,
0: what is your favorite prequel? Uh it, uh it is it is empire um uh-huh. uh and uh i think revenge of the sith is a, of you know of the of the prequels i can i can rewatch it in a way that i can't i mean i i very much think that attack of the clones is the worst one
1: i am in agreement with you yeah so i was deeply offended this past week when i read something in uh in the atlantic i think it was by Uh, David French Mm -hmm. on uh, his list of favorite movies and the worst movies, and he put The Force Awakens after Episode Two, and I just went, no, there is nothing, there is nothing that outdoes Attack of the Clones. If
0: you want to understand how bad it is, just listen to the commentary from George Lucas himself. They have like this mixed commentary Uh with like Lucas and then other people, and he's recording his separately. It's the most bored commentary you'll ever hear about a movie. It's he himself was like bored. Making it and it just doesn't. There's no. There's just no heart there, and it's a real shame because a good Clone Wars movie would actually be something very cool, and it's one of the reasons why the spin-off animated series, which I still need to catch up on because I've only seen a bit of it, is is uh, high quality and very. I think good. it
1: will be some of your favorite Star Wars. If you if you are a politics person and a military person, you will eat it up. Um, there are some. Uh, floor speeches in the Senate that you just, you you watch it and you just go, gosh, if only this were in the movie, I would have loved the prequels if this were in it. Um, what do you think with the prequels went wrong? And what do you think was done right? my My take has always been that it was George Lucas and Yes Men, mm-hmm. and there was no real focus grouping. There was no real uh, interest in what other people might think of these movies. It was just one guy and his ideas and Rick McCallum who said, yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. I think uh, I think you're correct about that. I think the other thing that you can understand about it is if you go back and you read uh, the book that they released uh, a couple of years ago uh, with uh, kind of the behind the scenes and everything about Empire Strikes Back, which has you know a bunch of pictures and stuff like that, but it also has all these transcripts in it uh, from recordings of people talking about dialogue and stuff like that on set. What you realize about that movie is, first, Lucas had, you know, maybe the least involvement in that film, you know, versus the other ones. He, he had really started to work on a bunch of other different projects. He had gone to Japan for a while. He was very frustrated when he came back to find that basically the way they had shot it, uh, he was, as opposed to his method of shooting a scene, you know, a hundred different ways uh, and then, like, having a bunch of different options about cutting it up which seems kind of pointless to me when so many scenes in the prequels are about sitting down on couches and standing up from couches. Uh, it it get left him basically with very few choices to make about the editing process. Uh, and I think that part of the problem for for movie makers who attain a certain level of success and this is true of authors as well is that you become impossible to edit and what that really you know leaves you with is these bulky oversized books I mean just you know no offense to J.K. Rowling but you can look at the difference in size between when she's starting out and the book she ends up with at the end and the same thing happened to Stephen King the same thing happens to any you know sort of uh, uh, famous and successful person because it's like well everything you make is gold so it has to all be in there.
1: It reminds me I I stopped reading Harry Potter after the Goblet of Fire, mm-hmm. and I was I was young. Was mm-hmm. They just got too thick. There's no way that it needed to be that <laughs> yeah, thick, yeah. and
0: I just couldn't do it. <laughs> so the so the thing so the thing that I think is uh, is true of the is true of the prequels is uh, Lucas Lucas. I think as much as he. Loved his the universe that he's that he created and acknowledges the fans you know to the, uh, with their support. He didn't really want to make these movies. He didn't really want to be trapped by sort of making them. And I think the problem was that he wasn't ready to let go yet. Uh, he he could have done the same thing that Disney decided to do. Basically, he has all these properties, is all these differences, but it is it's it's not an accident. I think that all the most interesting stuff that's been created within this universe. In the past, uh, you know really, you know since uh, since the original trilogy uh, comes less from the mind of Lucas uh, and more from the minds of others who you know grown up around it i mean the 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 moral quandaries that you find in Knights of the Old Republic are very memorable i mean you yeah. can you can make a wookiee kill his best friend you know like that's oh. that's like that like, scene on the beach that's on, that's uh, at up. the very end totally where you can
1: up. end yeah. <laughs> up having a massacre of your yes. entire team yes. it's a heavy yes. cinematic it, moment exactly
0: <laughs> and that's and th- the point is that doesn't come from lucas that comes from the you know i don't know who wrote that game i'm sure it's a group of people who all grew up watching Star Wars, you know, and going and wanting to someday make a game like this and uh, and coming out with a a product that, you know, can be as powerful as any, you know, miniseries or or movie or something like that. I hope that that's the kind of thing that we see more of from from Disney in the future. Just let's stretch the bounds of this. So
1: often in fandom,
0: um,
1: politics can be very divisive. I don't know how much time you spend on Star Wars message boards and Facebook groups, but uh, (laughs) it can get pretty contentious. And what you see is uh, fans who... If you press them, you find out they're conservative, Republican, uh, something else. And they will dismiss that Star Wars is political outright. They don't want to talk about it. Um, I think that's because uh, most other culture is political, and it makes them feel attacked when people are talking about it. You know, even when you turn on ESPN, they're talking politics, that kind of thing. And so they just want to keep it at arm's length. On the other side, uh, fans who come to Star Wars as liberal typically view Star Wars as a progressive opus mm-hmm. and unquestionably liberal in all of its uh, its messages because George Lucas himself is a liberal, and a lot of times he tends to offer commentary after the fact of his movies, mm-hmm. tying them into different political figures and whatnot. Um, where do you think Star Wars liberalism or inherent liberalism because of its creator Is accurate, And where do you think that it is actually not so true in practice? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've always believed about a lot of media and a lot of uh, progressive art is sometimes progressive and liberal art often is a self-defeating thing because a conservative will look at your message and go, oh, Mm -hmm. well, this message that you put out there is is exactly the reason I believe what I believe.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, well, I think there are different ways. I mean, you can always find uh, interesting lessons in both, uh, in both sides of this, you know, the, um, just to compare it to, uh, to a different aspect of this, uh, you, there's a way to view, you know, uh, uh, Star Trek and all of its different out- offputs as being this progressive sort of uh, uh, context. Uh, you know these uh, these you know various figures in this kind of diverse cast uh, going around the galaxy. You know purportedly to uh, you know to discover and explore and uh, and basically bring you know new civilizations, help them progress. You know in in different ways. Uh, you could view that as being some kind of UN mission. You could also view it as uh, as kind of a human exceptionalism mission. Or or and there are all sorts of different. Episodes and and uh, and movies that kind of back up that view of it, which it which you know instead of of being a story of of you know kind of building up other civilizations, is instead something about. Uh, kind of the the primacy of, of a particular view of the way that people ought to live, you know which could be viewed more closely associated with colonialism or, or with uh, things along those lines or certain certainly you know manifest destiny. I think that when it comes to Star Wars, the politics of it um, the, the politics of it become more, uh, aggressive as kind of time has gone on i think there's more politics in it now versus uh you know when it began i don't i don't really think that you can look uh at the at uh, a new hope as being really a very political movie i think instead it's your classic uh you know uh, it's your classic classic space uh space western opera <laughs> you know something that uh it, you know really you know pits uh a an evil authoritarian power against you know a a, a struggling uh rebellion that Wants freedom, but I don't think that that's necessarily a you know a political statement. You could compare that to you know the student riots in Iran, or you could compare it to you know any kind of other revolution or uprising, and those you know are are not naturally driven necessarily by uh, you know a particular idea set. They can be you know uh, come from different perspectives. the The point where I feel like just to get back to your question that uh, uh, progressives are. Correct in viewing uh, Star Wars as uh, a progressive message uh, is uh, is essentially one that is anti authoritarian that views this as being something that uh, that views kind of the capacity of of, uh, of authoritarian governments uh, to be to be in charge and to run things better than things with great skepticism better than people could themselves with mm-hmm. great skepticism. But that's not necessarily uh, something that I that I think is uh uh, is at odds with uh, a, a post-Enlightenment view of humanity. I think that you know, much of that argument is something that could be accepted by the founders who trusted people's capacities to rule themselves you know, in the sense that you know, the, the, if you get down to it when it comes to the, the Federation and the rebellion post the collapse that we see you know, happen in the prequels, the you know the rebellion is basically arguing that the planet that planetary systems have a better capacity to govern themselves than an overarching empire that tells them how uh, how to maintain order or something along those lines. That's interesting. There are arguments on the other side for that, obviously. You know, you see that in the uh, in the disputes over trade and you know and that kind of thing. I
1: think one of my favorite uh, fault lines that has emerged in the uh, in the new Star Wars canon is after. Episode 6, mm-hmm. um, Leia becomes a senator in the New Republic, representing uh, mostly the displaced people of Alderan. Mm-hmm. And she is the leader of the Populist Party. You have two parties that emerge, the Centrist Party and the Populist Party. The Populist Party rejects a, a strong central government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not believe that the New Republic should be able to incorporate worlds unless they want to be incorporated. And even then, um, there are really no galactic-wide laws. Mm-hmm. Every world is responsible for their own thing, and the New Republic cannot create broad laws that encompass everyone. And so while um, Leia, as a as a liberal icon, um, as a, a female empowerment, um, stands true for a lot of people, there's this... Uh, you just ignore that, well, in a lot of ways, she seems to be a small government activist yeah. in the in the new world of Star Wars. And she's also the only person screaming and yelling about Supreme Leader Snoke and the First Order and that mm. they're going to do something if we don't do something first. The, and they
0: do. The, the thing that I find to be interesting about that, of course, is that you have – if you think about it, it's 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 one of the reasons it's difficult to divide these things evenly is because of the through line that we have from the end of the nineteenth century to today, uh, in which. Uh, American progressives, uh, you know, with you know, including Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, including people in both parties, you know, essentially have argued for a century in favor of a more powerful executive, uh, you know, assisted by an administrative state filled with experts and elites who would determine the path forward for the country, and that's something that is perfectly consistent with the technocratic side of a progressive project that basically wants to see fewer differences between the American states and. More more direct nationally run policy. Of course the danger of that is that eventually you could end up with someone like Donald Trump who is is in charge of a system now that has been made much more powerful than it typically than it had been typically a century ago over Americans daily lives. And I think a perfect example of that is, you know, if there's an, if there's one thing that Trump has been successful with in the early days of his administration, it's been his approach to basically installing a lot of people, a lot of different agencies, who are intent on rolling back various regulations, mm-hmm. regulations that affect us nationally to a much greater degree uh, than they did, you know, a hundred years ago. One of the things that I think you see within that kind of planetary argument is, uh, is basically. You know, obviously, we all live on the same planet. Um, uh, the the difference, though, of course, is that we, we have in historically uh, been able to live in different states with different laws uh, governed by uh, governed by different rules, uh, still under the Constitution but without necessarily having uh, the kind of battles that we've seen in recent years uh, between uh, states and uh, and the national federal government over every single thing I, I personally don't think that it's a very good idea to invest a lot of power in some uh, in you know in, in any sort of situation that would remove power from these various planets to govern themselves according to their wishes but of course then there are all sorts of other problems that that opens up for you <laughs> so yeah I, I, I think there are a lot of fault lines that run through Star Wars. When it comes to the, uh, these issues, I don't think it's one thing or the other. I think that the that. Conservatives and liberals alike can find things that they aspects of it that they like. I do think that it's interesting though that uh, the the level of heat that develops because of these arguments. It just tells you how much that our politics is downstream from culture and uh, how much people take these cultural lessons and then apply it to their current existence.
1: That is so true. Um, my last question for you, Ben Dominich of the Federalist Radio Hour and publisher of the Federalist, is what are you excited about most with the Last Jedi
0: and the Han Solo movie? So, um, I uh, I'll start with the Han Solo movie because I'm very worried about it. Uh, I am as well. I'm worried about it because, and and it's not so much because of uh the cast as, as just the decision to make it because i think we already have a young han solo movie to a certain degree um it's true that i don't necessarily need to see every kind of point in between and uh and so i'm a little concerned about it even saying that even even though i do like some of their you know casting sort of choices and some of the people who they have uh involved in it uh so i'm i'm worried about that one uh trying trying to you know, hope that it turns out well. Uh, and when it comes to the Last Jedi, I feel like, I mean, I have been, uh, I've been a fan of Mark Hamill for a long time. I've loved Batman the Animated Series, and he's voiced the Joker for years. And I've always hoped that he would get, you know, another try to come back into things. You know, is sort of his own equivalent of John Travolta and Pulp Fiction or something like that. Can can he, you know, make a comeback to a degree? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just. You know, out of that desire, I I really hope, I hope that they give him good lines. I hope that he I hope that he's able to pull it together and and, and act well in it. It's always uh, tough to sort of see the the heroes of your youth kind of come try to make a comeback. You know, along yeah. these lines. And this really is a comeback movie uh, for him, or at least I anticipate it uh, to be that way. Uh, my my hope really is that we that we uh, that 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 is able to sort of stick its landing because I think you know in the movies that in the movies that do, in the movies where that you know main character coming back, you know is able to is able to pull things off, uh, they can work really well, and not just as kind of a nostalgia feeder. Uh, and so that's that's the thing that I'm both excited and uh, and hopeful about.
1: The return of Mark Hamill presents great promise and both great peril. <laughs> yes. um, ben Dominich of the Federalist Radio Hour and publisher of the Federalist. Thanks so much for joining Beltway Banthus today.
0: Great to be with you. All right.